three long years after Elizabeth Holmes was first indicted. I know that we made so many mistakes on this front. It's the moment we've all been waiting for. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. This is The Dropout, Elizabeth Holmes on Trial, Episode 19, The Verdict. Seven days and more than 50 hours after deliberations began in the criminal trial of Elizabeth Holmes, the jury, eight men and four women, one who gave us details you'll hear for the first time on this podcast, finally came to a decision. At 4.10 p.m. on January 3rd, 2022, courtroom four on the fifth floor of the San Jose courthouse was packed. Elizabeth, seated at the defense table, was stationed between her two lead attorneys, Kevin Downey and Lance Wade. Just behind her, a row of family and friends were shoulder to shoulder, including Elizabeth's partner, Billy Evans, her mother, Noelle, her father, Christian, and Billy's sister, Gracie. ABC News court producer Miles Cohen sat just a few feet away as the jurors entered the room. I watched as Holmes looked at the jurors as they came in, and I didn't see one juror look back at her. In fact, it looked like they were looking the other direction. You know, it it was just silent and tense during that time. And that tension seemed to extend to Elizabeth, who revealed the faintest hint of anxiety. Before the verdict was read, she sat straight up in her chair, but I could see under the table she was tapping her foot. You could see Billy Evans with his head in his hands and his eyes on the ground. Holmes' mom and dad just stuck in their seats and looked forward. I I could not see any visible sign of emotion on their face. When the proceedings began, the foreperson, juror number two, a man in his 30s or 40s, handed Judge Davila the verdict form. Throughout the courtroom, you could hear a slight whisper of measured breathing. Looking down at the document for the first time, Judge Davila raised an eyebrow. Something was missing the date. After it was added, Deputy Court Clerk Adriana Kratzman began to read aloud. We, the members of the jury, unanimously find the defendant, Elizabeth Holmes, guilty of the charge of conspiracy to commit wire fraud against Theranos investors. Kratzman continued down the list, ticking through each of the 11 counts. In the end, Elizabeth would be found guilty on a total of four, three counts of wire fraud, and one count of conspiracy to commit wire fraud against investors. Not guilty on four, three counts of wire fraud, and one count of conspiracy to commit wire fraud against patients, but on three additional counts related to investors Chris Lucas, Brian Tolbert, and former money manager Alan Eisenman, the jury could not reach a unanimous verdict. As the verdicts for each count were read, the room fell completely silent. Elizabeth blinked, but sat frozen. There was just no visible sign of emotion on Elizabeth Holmes' face. Uh, She was convicted on the very first count. And even after that, she just kept her eyes forward and she sat straight up in her chair, just like she's done for most of this trial. And the second count was read, again, no emotion. The third count, the fourth count. And there wasn't really anything from her family either. They were looking straight ahead and 
this was not something I expected from someone who had been convicted of fraud. It was a surreal conclusion to a trial that's lasted more than 17 weeks and a day filled with uncertainty. In the morning, the jury had issued a note declaring that they'd been deadlocked on those three counts. Judge Davila had read an Allen note instructing the jurors to go back and deliberate, not to rush. But just a few hours later, the jury had returned, conceding they couldn't agree on the three charges related to investors Lucas, Talbert, and Eisenman. This outcome, is it surprising? It is absolutely surprising. I'm sort of baffled by the results. Caroline Polisi is a white-collar defense attorney who's been following along with us throughout the trial and has advised hundreds of clients throughout her career. She says she's never seen a verdict quite like this. It's kind of like a everybody gets something verdict. It's like some not guilty, some guilty, and some hung. Although I really do think that even though it seems like a compromise verdict, in reality, her exposure is essentially the same as it would have been had she been convicted on all counts, really, as a practical matter. You've been in that room with clients. How do they behave under these circumstances? Elizabeth Holmes was in the courtroom with her mom, her father, her partner, Billy Evans. They were stoic. There was not even a wince when the verdict was delivered. How do they behave once they walk out of that courthouse and they're sitting there with their attorneys after this bad news? Oh, it, it really it really runs the gamut. And, and oftentimes there's a reason why um, I will just say that clients often obtain new counsel for sentencing, and that is not by chance. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if Elizabeth Holmes were her you know, typical, the, the Elizabeth Holmes that, that, that we all know, I would assume that she is getting down to business, is incredibly uh, practical about the whole situation and, you know, is not throwing her hands up, but is looking for options to continue. This is, this is far from over. So th- this is not, there, there's not a lot of time to waste. So what exactly will this kind of potpourri verdict mean for Elizabeth? Here's Santa Clara University law professor Ellen Kreitzberg, who's also been following the trial with us from the start. This is clearly a win for the prosecution. It really is less important as to whether or not she was convicted of some or all of the offenses. The fact that she was convicted of some of the offenses means she's going to be held accountable for what they have shown to be her deceitful and fraudulent behavior. And so I think this is clearly a win for the government. Kreitzberg says not to conflate a confusing outcome with a confused jury. This jury concluded the way they've conducted themselves the entire trial. They were thoughtful. They were conscientious. It appears they really meticulously went through the evidence and they differentiated among the different counts in deciding that she was guilty of some, not guilty of others, and ultimately couldn't reach a unanimous decision in a few other of the counts. This idea that she could be found guilty on four of the investor counts, but that these other three investor counts would be inconclusive, there would be no verdict on them. Does that undermine in any way the overarching verdict? 
I don't think the fact that it was a mixed verdict undermines it at all. The jury clearly found she engaged in fraudulent, deceitful conduct. They found she made these misrepresentations with the intent to defraud. They were not persuaded by any of the suggestion that she may have been overpowered psychologically or influenced psychologically by Sonny Balwani. And so they made a very clear statement that she should be held accountable. The fact that some of the counts were inconclusive, we first of all don't know how the jury split on those counts. We don't know if they were evenly divided or the majority felt she should be found guilty or not guilty. And we also don't know what they focused on with respect to the evidence. The evidence was not identical as to each investor when we look at how she communicated information to them, how they learned about certain information. And so I don't find it troubling at all. And as it turns out, we now know to some extent how the jury reached the conclusions they did. We spoke to juror number six, Wayne Cotts, a 64-year-old TV writer and actor from Aptos, California. Cotts co-wrote 90s animated series like Tiny Toon Adventures and Problem Child and even won a daytime Emmy for writing the Tiny Toons theme song. Cotts told us on the first day of deliberations, the jury did an anonymous poll. Every juror indicated whether he or she thought Elizabeth was guilty on each of the 11 counts. Cotts said the results were mixed. We tallied them on an eraser board, and we saw that they were divided on most everything, he said. But after three days of deliberations, the jurors had reached a decision on eight of the counts and spent the remaining four days debating those final three counts, which ended in mistrial. Cotts told us he personally believed Elizabeth was guilty on the three deadlock charges, but more than one juror felt Elizabeth was not guilty on those charges. We had nowhere to go, he said. We had already talked in circles for hours and hours and days and days, he told us. So we all made one last argument either way, and we were stuck right where we were, where we'd been stuck for days. The jury also never expected for the trial to last so long. We joked early on about, we'll be doing this in 2022, Cott said. Cott says the jury ranked witnesses' credibility using stars. As he described it, one star was no credibility. Two was like, listen to that. Three was pretty good. And four was completely credible. And what was Elizabeth's star ranking? Cott says she scored the lowest, a two. Lab director Adam Rosendorf got four. We liked the way he paused, said Cotts, that he would think about his answers. And there were no one-star witnesses. Cott says some of the jury also liked investor Alan Eisenman, whom you may recall is one of the more colorful characters in the courtroom. He had a lot of outbursts. But Cott says the jury liked it when witnesses showed emotion, Maybe it didn't go to their veracity that much, but it certainly made it entertaining, according to Cotts. Eisenman, incidentally, scored a three in the star system. Cotts also told us he was the juror who sent the note before Christmas asking if they could bring the jury instructions home because he found them overwhelming. When the jury asked to rehear the investor call recorded by Brian Talbert, Cott says it was because they wanted to listen to how Elizabeth pitched her technology. 
The jurors were specifically listening for Elizabeth's comments about the use of Theranos devices in Afghanistan or in the field and decided that she was careful with her language, couching her statements as future projections. She was careful with her words, said Cotts. And that was a big reason, according to Cotts, that the jury was hung on the investor counts related to Chris Lucas and Brian Tolbert, who were both on that call. Cotts says the jury concluded Elizabeth was responsible for information that went to investors because she was ultimately in charge, but that she was, quote, one step removed from the patients, which is why they found her not guilty on those counts. The jury, according to Cotts, also didn't feel the patients were directly defrauded. Cott says that after the jury reached a decision, it's not like anybody was glad, like, oh yeah, you know, she's guilty, we got her. It was really hard to convict her, he said. It's tough to convict somebody, especially somebody so likable with such a positive dream, you know, attempt to really change the world for the better. It's tough to convict, he told us. As for Elizabeth's allegation, she was abused by Sonny Belwani. Cott says the jury felt sympathetic, but mostly just avoided the subject in deliberations because they didn't think the claims were relevant. Cotts also noted Elizabeth cried, and then when the question wasn't about that, she wasn't crying. Cott says, in the end, the jury respected Elizabeth's belief in her technology, in her dream. He says he thinks she still believes in it, and that the jury still believes she believes in it. Cotts told us he felt one of the most compelling pieces of evidence were the financial projections given to Lisa Peterson, the investment manager for the DeVos family office. Lisa Peterson had written a number on the document, presumably in a meeting with Elizabeth, by hand. And that written note was very convincing to Cotts. Cotts says at times jurors were pinching themselves just to stay awake, but that because of the nationwide attention, there was extra pressure to take everything seriously. When they heard rumblings, General James Mattis was taking the stand. Cott said he thought to himself, wouldn't it be funny if it were General Mattis? And it was. I had no idea. That's big time. Gee, I wonder who's going to be, who we're going to hear from next. Cott said General Mattis was believable and it was amazing how all these witnesses who were hurt by Elizabeth were very sympathetic to her. Cott said you could tell they really, despite feeling let down, were impressed by her and respected her and cared about her. Cott said he thought they all did. As for Elizabeth herself taking the stand, Cott said they were surprised, but it was all on her and this was her. If she didn't say anything in her own defense, I think it would have worked against her, said Cotts. There were also times, according to Cotts, when the reporters in the courthouse covering the trial sounded like a cocktail party outside the courtroom doors. On a lighter note, Cotts says the jury got along famously. We were all very interactive. We worked as a unit and we respected each other. Those people have good heart, he said. Cott says everyone on the jury had a busy life, children, jobs, and that he was proud to be with those hardworking people. He said he was the one who nominated juror number two as the foreman because he seemed very mature and organized. We all voted for him, said Cotts. Cotts also says during breaks, jurors would do puzzles together. 
On the day Elizabeth finished her testimony and the defense rested its case, they had just put down the final piece on a puzzle of Seurat's Sunday afternoon on the island of Le Grand Jatte. It was a picture which Cotts observed Judge Davila coincidentally had hanging on the wall of his chambers. It's like we're working on this puzzle, the whole trial, and we'll put the last piece in on the very day that her testimony ended, said Cotts. Cotts says they had the same lunch every day for months, ham, turkey, and roast beef sandwiches. He was a turkey and cheese guy. Sometimes the jurors would swap sandwiches. Cotts says the juror who raised ethical concerns about staying on because she was concerned about rendering judgment on a fellow human being, but was ultimately kept on, was met with applause when she entered the deliberation room on her first day. Cott says everyone really liked Judge Davila, who he said was even-keeled, steady, and fair. They also liked Davila's deputy clerk, Ariana Kratzman, who Cotts called the jury's pilot. They made us feel almost like celebrities, he said. We were pampered, they made us feel comfortable and very respected. That was the best part of the experience, said Cotts. But in the end, Cotts said he's happy it's over and he doesn't want to do it again. With or without all these insider details, Jay Edelson, the founder and CEO of Edelson PC, who's been called Silicon Valley's most hated plaintiff's attorney, says the bottom line now for Elizabeth is quite simple. The big news is Elizabeth Holmes is going to jail and probably going to jail for a pretty long period of time. And we we have to give credit to the jury. They were trying to match up what the prosecution proved with what the specific elements of the crimes were. The difficult part of this case was separating the emotions from it. Holmes put together a very well-done emotional defense, and the jury clearly was not impressed by that. I think the jury did its job, and, you know, I'm really, I'm proud of the legal system. I think the, the judge was terrific. She put on a good defense. They didn't have a lot of cards, you know, they could they could use, but they used the ones they had. But uh, but I'm sure the, the prosecution is, is feeling very, very good right now. Hey, this is Brad Milkey. I host ABC's daily news podcast, Start Here. The Dropout will be back in a minute. But first. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I want to invite you to start your day with us. Every morning on Start Here, we dive deep into the biggest news stories with some of the best journalists in the world. It's smart, it's relevant, and maybe most importantly for you, it's quick. Again, that's Start Here, the daily podcast from ABC News. Available wherever you listen. While Elizabeth Holmes has always been the heart of this story, it's also been a parable about us 
and the ecosystem that allowed her to thrive and ultimately awaited her downfall. What does this outcome mean for Silicon Valley, where startups by young founders are sprouting up every day? As we've chronicled here over 25 episodes, Elizabeth received early support from Silicon Valley luminaries like Oracle's Larry Ellison, investor Don Lucas, and venture capitalist Tim Draper, who, sitting in my office in 2016, insisted that Theranos' technology worked. Have you seen so, the technology? Oh, yeah. I've you've done seen it. it. I've you, done it. You've done it. I've done it. And there were 50 tests run on 50 one tests drop on of blood. Two drops of two blood. Two drops of blood. Two drops of blood. 50 tests. 50 tests. Two drops of blood from your fingers. Yes. And it worked beautifully. We reached out to Draper, who gave us the following statement after the verdict. This verdict makes me concerned that the spirit of entrepreneurship in America is in jeopardy. Elizabeth Holmes is an entrepreneur. She envisions a better future. Entrepreneurs invent and keep iterating until their product works. I still believe in what she was trying to do. And if this scrutiny happened to every entrepreneur as they tried to make this world a better place, we would have no automobile, no smartphone, no antibiotics, and no automation. And our world would be less for it. But besides PFM Health Sciences, most of Theranos' later stage funding came from investors like Rupert Murdoch and the Walton and DeVos families, not the major venture firms that specialize in biotech. In retrospect, that should have been a clear warning, according to Jason Calacanis, a former journalist who's now an angel investor. What's the takeaway from this trial going to be in Silicon Valley? Well, that's a great question. If you zoom back and you look at Theranos as a company, it's really not a Silicon Valley company in terms of you know who funded it. We don't actually consider Theranos really part of what we do here because they failed uh, the ultimate test, which was raising money from the top venture capital firms here in Silicon Valley. She got none of the top investors in Silicon Valley. She struck out zero for zero. She didn't get anybody in the top 100 firms. That, that's all you need to know. Calacanis was an early investor in Uber and hundreds of other Silicon Valley startups. While he thinks bold vision and risk-taking will always be a part of the Valley's DNA, he says what Elizabeth did was something else entirely. There is certainly a piece to what we do here in Silicon Valley that is to be audacious and not to fake it till you make it, but to suspend disbelief uh, and to be a bit delusional uh, because what it takes to build an electric car uh, or Uber or Airbnb is uh, you have a probably one to 5% chance of succeeding. So it does draw the entrepreneurial class, a group of dreamers with audacious goals uh, who uh, are, you know, in their best moments delusional in that they convince themselves when they wake up that I can do this. And I'll make it happen. And the ones who actually do win in Silicon Valley are the ones who do the work and who raise money from the most qualified investors. And Elizabeth Holmes is the opposite of that profile, in my estimation, having invested in over 300 founders. One bad actor is not going to have any effect on people's ability or appetite to invest in high growth tech companies that change the world. It'll have zero impact on Silicon Valley. Having watched the Theranos debacle unfold, Calacanis now recommends this rule of thumb. If a company becomes worth billions of dollars before they have a product in market, it's going to fail and it might be a fraud. It doesn't have to be a fraud, but it might be. 
While Elizabeth may not have received the official backing of Silicon Valley, it sure looked like she had it, at least for a time. Remember, in addition to loads of glowing publicity from the press, from Time, Fortune, Forbes, The New Yorker, Mary Claire, and others, Elizabeth was also celebrated in and gained entry to some very exclusive circles in Silicon Valley and beyond. Harvard named her to its medical school board of fellows. President Obama named her a U.S. ambassador for global entrepreneurship. I think the opportunity to um, try to connect with especially women and young girls in developing economies around what only because of this country I've been able to do. She was a fixture at Bay Area parties with tech titans and venture capitalists. And as for her prestigious board of directors, many came through her connection to former Secretary of State George Shultz and to Stanford's Hoover Institution, which is one reason why attorney Jay Edelson says he suspects this is a Silicon Valley story that will have an undeniable impact. I think overall, this is going to lead to a tremendous shakeup uh, in Silicon Valley. We've had, you know, 20 plus years uh, of Silicon Valley playing fast and loose with, with facts. And everyone kind of just agreed that it was okay. And it really isn't okay. It's not okay to steal a billion dollars from investors and it's not okay to, uh, to mess with people's lives. Edelson hopes if there is that kind of shakeup, it'll apply to everyone. It, it concerns me that Elizabeth Holmes was at the time the, the most prominent female startup. And the number of men who have gotten away with stuff that Elizabeth Holmes did, if not worse, it, it would fill, you know, journals. I, I do, just as someone who believes so much in consumer rights, uh, and not defrauding people. I'm, I'm glad about this guilty verdict. It makes me uneasy that um, I don't want there to be one scapegoat here. I'm not it's not saying that she didn't do, do anything wrong. She deserves her sentence. But uh, but I, I think there are a lot of other people, a lot of men who've done uh, similar things. And I, I hope that, uh, that justice will be done in other instances as well. Well, do you think this changes things? Do you see more of these cases being brought by the government? Yeah, I mean, it, I think it changed things on a number of levels. I think uh, investors probably um, are, are buoyed by this result and probably feel like they've got better arguments to make that they were defrauded. And yeah, I think, you know, prosecutors now understand that these are tough cases to try in that, you know, they're long cases, they're, you know, somewhat in the weeds but they're eminently winnable and they're really important uh, for our country. Law professor Ellen Kreitzberg doesn't see it leading to any sweeping changes, but she does expect an impact. You live in the Valley, you practice in the Valley, you teach in the Valley. What is the outcome of this case? So I don't think this is going to have a dramatic change in Silicon Valley. I think it is on the one hand, sends a very clear message to CEOs to be mindful of where that ethical line is and to be even more careful not to cross that line. And remember, the line they're saying she crossed was that she shifted from the projection of, I have an incredible machine that will potentially revolutionize healthcare. And that vision statement that a lot of companies engage in is not the criminal behavior. 
But when she crossed the line to saying, and here is what my machine already does, that's where she crossed the line. And I don't think most companies do that. So it is a lesson that you will be held accountable if you do cross that line. And I think it also should have the effect on investors who, although their lack of due diligence in this case to look into her claims was not considered a defense to Elizabeth Holmes, but certainly is a signal to investors that perhaps they should be more careful. And before they invest hundreds of millions in dollars, they should look more carefully, get very clear, precise statements, and be very clear on what information they are getting from the company. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of innovation on the one hand, and a lot of people looking to make a whole lot of money on the other hand. And so much of what happens in the Valley is not going to change. So where does that leave us? And what are founders who are fighting to get their ideas off the ground right now supposed to make of the Elizabeth Holmes allegory? I think the the Theranos case is one that will be taught for centuries in business schools about what not to do uh, and how not to build and, and run a company. Adam Grant is an organizational psychologist at Wharton and host of the TED podcast, Work Life. He also mentors a lot of startups. I think at minimum, we need to be much clearer about what it means to fake it until you make it, right? I've never been a fan of that advice to begin with. I'm, I'm much more comfortable investing in an entrepreneur who just admits, I don't know what I'm doing on this yet, but I'm confident that we'll figure it out together. And I think you know, a lot of entrepreneurs are just given bad advice. Throughout the story, there's this blurred line between full transparency and selling the dream. And that is a question every founder, every startup faces. Where do you think the line should be? Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with selling a dream. I think where you run into trouble is when you make claims that you've already achieved the dream, when in fact you haven't. And so I think every founder has to make a case for why their vision is important and what makes it achievable. I see this in founders a lot. There's an expectation that they have to show hockey stick growth. But in many cases, that's a projection, right? It's an aspiration. You can't claim it's reality if it hasn't happened. Where do you think that need to show the hockey stick growth is coming from? I think investors put a lot of pressure on entrepreneurs uh, to to prove that they're going to be the next game-changing startup. And I think that yeah, that sometimes leads entrepreneurs to cut corners. I think also though some of the pressure is internalized, right? I think we we live in a society where people are are constantly trying to outdo others. Uh, you see, you, know, you see your classmates' startup valued at hundreds of millions or billions of dollars. You're like, well, what what have I done with my life lately? And then it it becomes, I think, a slippery slope for some founders that I've seen who. You know, who think that they, they just have to exceed whatever, whatever that yardstick is. Grant hopes there's a bigger takeaway too. The right lesson is to say, we actually need more founders who are working on solving meaningful problems, not just building cute apps. And we need better systems and standards for evaluating whether what they're doing is credible. As for the other major outstanding question, what becomes of Sonny Belwani? We still don't know. Elizabeth's former boyfriend and COO originally was charged as her co-conspirator. His trial is scheduled to begin next month. Sonny's attorney, Jeff Coopersmith, was confident about his client's chances when we spoke to him back in 2019. 
I'm very confident that when the jury hears the whole story, uh, you're going to see uh, an acquittal in this case. But post-Elizabeth Holmes' verdict, Jay Edelson says Sonny has reason to be less optimistic. I think it's bad for Sonny on a, on a number of levels. One is you never really want to be the second defendant uh, to go because the prosecution learned so much from the first trial. So they're allowed to speak to members of the jury and say, tell me what worked and what didn't work. That's alone very helpful. Second, they, they won their case. And a lot of the things that they're going to have to show to convict Elizabeth Holmes, they're going to have to show again for Sonny. And they've demonstrated that they can do that. Um, so I, I just think he's, he's in uh, a lot of trouble. And it'll be interesting to see his defense. I'm sure his defense is going to be, she made all the decisions. You know, I was just rooting for her from the sidelines. And um, that's going to be a really, really difficult defense to make. It's also entirely possible the government and Sonny are already working on another option, according to Professor Kreitzberg. I'm sure that Sonny Balwani is discussing with his lawyers whether at this point they should reach out to the government for a plea offer. And I'm sure the government is thinking about whether they want to reach out to Sonny Balwani to make a plea offer, even though it seems more likely they can get the conviction. And so their case against Sonny Balwani is stronger in many ways after the trial of Elizabeth Holmes. A trial is a long and arduous process, and if they can get a plea offer, it is usually worth the government's time to do that. It saves an awful lot of time and energy and logistics and all the witnesses that have to come to California again to testify. But I suspect that there'll be some significant conversations about the possibility of a plea between the government and Sonny Balwani's lawyers. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. While Sonny Balwani and Elizabeth Holmes's cases were severed ahead of her trial, the outcomes may be linked in other ways. Judge Davila and both legal teams agreed after the verdict to postpone Elizabeth's sentencing until after Sonny's litigation is resolved, whether by plea deal or trial. And law professor Ellen Kreitzberg says Elizabeth could use that to her advantage. Elizabeth Holmes and her lawyers may talk to the government now about cooperating with them in the trial of Sonny Balwani. Under the federal guidelines, cooperation by a defendant is viewed very favorably and allows some what's called downward departures. In other words, allows the judge to reduce the sentence that might otherwise be required under the guidelines. So she may be interested in pursuing that now that she's facing conviction on several counts. Ultimately, it's up to Judge Davila to sentence Elizabeth. Each of the four guilty counts carries a maximum of 20 years in prison. Elizabeth also faces a fine of $250,000 plus restitution for each count of wire fraud and conspiracy. So 
how likely is it Elizabeth Holmes spends serious time behind bars? We polled our three legal experts, Edelson, Kreitzberg, and Polisi, as well as ABC News chief legal affairs correspondent Dan Abrams. Their predictions about Elizabeth's sentence ranged from about three to 10 years behind bars. But there's a lot of wiggle room when it comes to those numbers, according to attorney Caroline Polisi. If you were her attorneys, what would that conversation look like when you walk out of the court? You always, always got to stay positive. There is a lot to be done at sentencing here. It's its own cottage industry among criminal defense attorneys. You, you have to be focused now at this point. There is a lot that's going to happen and it's going to happen quickly. It is not a foregone conclusion in terms of how long she is going to jail. And really, I would I would note that there is an argument to be made that that maybe she shouldn't go to jail at all. You think there's a chance Elizabeth Holmes doesn't go to prison at all? I I don't think there is a chance that she doesn't go to prison at all. I think there is a chance that her lawyers will argue with straight face that she may not need to go to prison, that the principles of the federal sentencing guidelines can be achieved without sending her to prison. I think certainly that this split verdict will give them a lot of room to work with in terms of how are they going to go about making the arguments for a departure from from the guidelines. Polisi also believes the amount of money involved in the investor fraud convictions, more than $140 million, could have an impact on sentencing. The loss amount here is is very high. And for better or for worse, these the, the federal sentencing guidelines, they have a huge bump up when the loss goes above $65 million. You know, she's definitely looking at technically over 15 years or in the realm of that possibility. This is where Elizabeth's abuse allegations against Sonny Belwani could play a role. Sonny has firmly denied the claims, and the defense conspicuously left them out of closing arguments. But Polisi says they could help Elizabeth at sentencing. It really could be that they were laying the foundation, if necessary, to be able to delve into that complex relationship a bit more in the sentencing, because you get more wiggle room in a sentencing memorandum in terms of the types of arguments you can make. And I think that that type of an argument in terms of being in an abusive relationship is definitely the type of background color that an attorney would put in a memorandum arguing that a non-guidelines, maybe even a non-custodial sentence would be sufficient, but not greater than necessary to satisfy the objectives of the sentencing guidelines. Elizabeth's good behavior and personal circumstances might also help, according to Professor Ellen Kreitzberg. This is a judge who is both thoughtful and compassionate. And the more time that passes where she stays out of trouble and perhaps engages in more positive conduct will weigh heavily in her favor. One issue to think about with respect to sentencing, that although the fact that she has a child and and her family is not a specific factor the court can consider, I think it does give us the opportunity to think about whether or not compassion in any way should enter into sentencing. And the federal guidelines are fairly rigid and do not allow a a lot of room for that. But it'll be an interesting discussion when the judge does issue his sentence and he's required, and I'm sure he will, give a long and detailed explanation for the reasons for his sentence. 
Kreitzberg says we could also be hearing then from two of the heroes in this story, Tyler Schultz and Erica Chung, who risked everything to expose what they said they witnessed inside of Theranos. Their experience could be included in the impact statements. A report is conducted by a uh, court office that will look into her background, will talk to the victims, and may even talk to some of the people like Tyler Schultz or Erica Chung, who really received a great deal of intimidation in the context of this case, much of which wasn't brought into trial. At sentencing, the judge can go outside of the four walls of the courtroom and learn all kinds of information, both positive and negative, about Elizabeth Holmes in deciding what the appropriate sentence is. Tyler Schultz, by the way, whose remarkable bravery is a big reason we're all here, posted this statement to Twitter after the verdict was read in court. This has been a long chapter in my life. I am happy that justice has been served and that this saga is finally in my rearview mirror. Proud of the impact that Erica and I had. Hope to inspire other young professionals to hold their leaders accountable. Even in the face of all of it, when we spoke back in the first season of The Dropout, Erica warned us not to become cynical. I hope that people don't get completely discouraged and think that everyone who is in the healthcare industry and the biotech industry is somehow out to get them and to hurt them. Like there are a lot of good people in this industry that really, really want to do, you know, really want to do good. The government will also have the option to retry the three counts where jurors were deadlocked and Judge Davila ruled a mistrial. Prosecutors say they expect to make a decision on that at a hearing next week. But Jay Edelson believes a retrial at this point is unlikely. The basic rule of thumb is that when a prosecutor has already done a trial once, the second time around, they make all the mistakes go away. So already, I'm sure they spent a good portion of the afternoon talking to the jury members, finding out what worked, what didn't work. Uh, and they're going to put on, if, if they do have to do it, and it kind of depends what the sentencing is going to look like, uh, you know, Holmes is in a lot of trouble. You think they would actually retry Elizabeth Holmes on those three counts where the jury could not come to a conclusion? I don't think they have to because they they got the big win. These these are serious fraud counts they got guilty verdicts on. These aren't kind of little piddling counts. These this had to do with the core of their case. But it is it is not uncommon at all for prosecutors to take. Uh, take the verdict they've got, got to get a few guilty counts and then retry any hung counts. Um, so I'm sure there's something they'll be thinking through. Once sentencing is determined, it's very likely Team Holmes will file an appeal, a process Professor Kreitzberg says could take years. They will ask the judge to keep her release pending the outcome of the appeal. And this judge may very well leave her out pending appeal, which could take from one to two years. So although there is some accountability which has been decided by the jury today with their verdict, the actual punishment may not come into effect for some time. Even so, Kreitzberg is confident there will come a day when Elizabeth is behind bars. In that appeal, the lawyers will ask the court to look at legal errors. Did the judge make rulings 
that were incorrect, constitutionally impermissible. And because of those errors, should her conviction be overturned? Now, if they're successful on appeal, it doesn't mean she's absolved. It means it goes back and the government can take her to trial again. But this judge was extraordinarily careful, very smart, and in any of the rulings in which it was a very close case, he tended to give the ruling to the side of the defense. And he did that probably knowing that should there be a conviction, it'd be very unlikely that it would be reversed on appeal. So now Elizabeth, 37 years old, celebrated less than a decade ago as the next Steve Jobs and once the youngest female self-made billionaire, waits. She's not in custody, but she's no longer free. On January 3rd, 2022, Elizabeth walked out of the San Jose courthouse. Elizabeth, ABC News, how are you feeling? Much like she did on day one of this trial and every day in between. Hand in hand with members of her family, she was expressionless, focused, and silent. Before we go, we want to thank you, the listeners, for coming along with us on this journey. Thank you for sharing this with us, for giving us your time, for trusting us with this complicated story. Well, this is goodbye for now. We hope to be back soon with big developments and also something new. And we hope you'll set a reminder for March 3rd, 2022, when the Hulu limited scripted series called The Dropout, based on the first season of this podcast, begins. Elizabeth Holmes and Sunny Belwani did not respond or decline to comment for this podcast. Some material, including court depositions, were edited for clarity and time. The Dropout, Elizabeth Holmes on Trial, is written and reported by Victoria Thompson, Taylor Dunn, and me. Victoria is the executive producer. Taylor and I are producers. For ABC Audio, Susie Liu is producer, and Madeline Wood and Marwa Mwaki are associate producers. Dia Athen and Miles Cohen are our court producers. For ABC's business unit, our associate producer is Victor Ordonez, and our production assistant is Lane Wynn. Mixing and scoring on this episode is by Susie Liu and Robert Galang. Evan Viola composed the music for The Dropout. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY and Cedric Honstadt. For ABC Audio, Liz Alessi is executive producer. Special thanks to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Ian Rosenberg, Eric Avram, and Stacia Deshishku.